This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon. Welcome to another episode of Cast Club Radio. Thanks so much for being with us today. My name is Lydia Cruz. And I'm Justin Stiefel. And I'm Maura Dooley. We are coming off a pretty exciting week in Seattle sports history, I want to say. Last weekend, Edgar Martinez going into the Hall of Fame, into the hollowed house of Cooperstown. And Gar got there after a long battle, a 10-year battle, but so impressive. And Justin, you got to be there in person. How cool was that? It was amazing. Never been to Cooperstown, the town itself. Only about 1,700 people. What? Uh, they, wow. They call themselves a village. Uh, <laughs> very much has a village feel. Old school buildings of brick and plaster. And uh, almost like walking back in as if you were walking through uh, during Revolutionary War or even Civil War times. And having a chance to have dinner with Edgar and several of the greats that wow. have been on the Seattle Mariners team uh, at dinner. We had Ken Griffey Jr., Alvin Davis, Ricky Henderson showed up. Wow. Uh, Jay Buhner was there, Dan Wilson, and then uh, some of Edgar's friends who uh, are, were also in the league, including Pudge Rodriguez, you know, the former uh, mm-hmm. catcher for the Texas Rangers who himself went into the Hall of Fame a couple years ago. It was just an awesome experience. And the thing that stood out to me was Cooperstown is only about three and a half or four hours north of New York City, and yet the number of Mariners fans walking up and down the streets, going to the restaurants, the bars, all the events of the weekend, almost outnumbered the New York Yankees fans. That's impressive. And, uh, yeah, you know, phenomenal. New York it was amazing. And New York had, of course, uh, Mike Messina, who pitched for, for New York Yankees for eight years after leaving Baltimore. And, uh, you know, Baltimore is in pretty close proximity as well. People could take a train to get up there if they wanted. And then, uh, of course, having uh, Mariano Rivera, the all-time close uh, saver for Major League Baseball, he was there. And so to have Seattle Mariners fans so strong as a presence. And, and the thing that jumped out at Jennifer and me was when we were at the gift shop at the Hall of Fame, and uh, they you know, they have all the all the paraphernalia you can buy for each of the six inductees, and the only one where his stuff was consistently sold out, whether it was pennants or shirts or hats or the little lapel pins, the only one that sold out was Edgar Martinez, and it was it was just a fantastic experience. His speech was amazing, and uh, I loved it. Uh, if anybody saw it on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had these huge blow up fathead uh, yes. pictures, and so the crowd was holding up, you know, pictures of Edgar and <laughs> Ken Griffey Jr. and and even Randy Johnson, uh, and Randy Johnson was at the dinner too. Um, but the comment, the MC said, Seattle fans travel so well, uh, they were impressed by how big a crowd we had there. So it was it was awesome, and and could not be uh, given the honor to a more deserving person than Edgar Martinez. Someone who, you know, maybe Alvin Davis is Mr. Mariner, but I can't think of anybody who might be, you know, this era's 
Mr. Mariner more than Edgar Martinez and what he's meant to this franchise and to all of the, the fans who got to watch him over their years. I thought his speech was so moving, especially when he spoke to his family and to his wife, Holly. He said the, he practiced his speech so many times, but that the only part where he almost lost it and he almost broke down was when he was specifically addressing his daughters. Um, and that was pretty cool to see on television. So congrats to Edgar yes. as he yeah, heads well, into at, the hall. At the- at the dinner, uh, Bud Selig showed up. Oh, hey, dinner, Bud. And he's, you know, he's getting older in years, but he made a, a comment about, um, you know, how could he said, I was honored to go to at that point, Safeco Field, now T-Mobile Park to present the, uh, Edgar Martinez award named after Edgar Martinez for the American <laughs> League designated hitter every year. Okay. And he said, how could you have an award for somebody? And not have that person be in the Hall of Fame. Exactly. That, yeah. that makes no sense. And uh, uh, the current commissioner uh, made note. He said that double that Edgar hit in the series uh, championship in 1995 is what saved Seattle baseball. It saved baseball in Seattle. And so his impact on the city and the region and the sport uh, goes on m- farther than all of the totality of his records. Uh, It is the fact that he helped save baseball in Seattle. Absolutely. No question about that. And we are almost out of time, but we want to get into a few quick stories here. I think we should get into the two travel-themed ones since, Justin, you were traveling across the country. And so these really caught our eye. What's going on in the headlines this week? Yeah, these are pretty amazing. Uh, The first one, we've all experienced frustration with the airlines and some of the (laughs) rules and and how they are just uh, silliness all abounds. And so a passenger in Australia was upset because Qantas told him he couldn't take a can of beer on board. And so he checked the can of beer in, had the (laughs) check-in tag label wrapped around the can. And when folks at Perth uh, saw this coming down the uh, baggage claim, they all wondered what the heck. Uh, but uh, I think we all have felt one level of frustration or another. And so kudos to this passenger who went the extra mile to make sure his beer arrived with him safely at Perth. And uh, more importantly, it. thank you to the baggage people who didn't crack it open and yeah. it behind the scenes. <laughs> Good restraint on their part. What That's else? Right. What else is going on in the headlines? Another travel-themed well, one this week. I love this. I didn't. I didn't know this existed, but now I know. It's called the Vin Guard Valise suitcase. We'll put a link on the <laughs> Cast Club Radio. Uh, just Google, type in um, wine suitcase, and you're going to get a few different things <laughs> popping up. There's a new wine suitcase in the market. Uh, it's designed to hold your clothes and up to 12 bottles of wine. Uh, it's got 360-degree wheels, an extra ribbed hard exterior. It's TSA-approved uh, with a TSA-approved lock. It's got uh, safety straps, so once you put your wine in there, you can put the strap around it to prevent it from opening. And uh, it's perfect for those trips where you want to either go to wine country and you know you're going to bring back some wine, up to 12 bottles, or uh, if you're just going to go on vacation or a cruise or whatever and you want to bring some uh, wine with you, it's an amazing thing. It's uh, about 300 to 400 bucks, depending on the size you get and where you get it online. The wine suitcase, this is a must-have for Christmas gifts. Yeah, well, I could have sure. used this when I went to Italy. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, <laughs> and you guys just got back from your big European adventure. So we'll make sure to post the photo of this online because you definitely want to check out how how nifty this thing looks and maybe... Maybe get one for yourself. That's right. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, we've all looked at a wine label before and maybe been a little mystified by some of the terms that have been on the tasting notes. Maybe things like buttery, melony, second nose. Well, up next on Cast Club Radio, we'll explain 
what those mean. Plus, look at maybe some of the more ridiculous ones out there. It's next on Cast Club Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We're going to get in here to a little world of wine speak where I'm sure in your past you've picked up a wine label and maybe had a, a question or two about what is on the label. I'm talking about some of the tasting notes that can be confusing at times. Things like buttery, rose-like, berry fruits. We're going to get into what those mean here in a minute, but Justin, will you tell us about some of the more ridiculous ones out there that, that we've seen? Yeah, well, we, we found this at Forbes.com and the, the article is entitled The Uselessness of Wine Speak. Uh, <laughs> we're not going to read the whole article, but um, it does jump around and, and identifies uh, examples in history of where someone who was writing a description was a little over the top. And, and some that jumped out at me that I liked the most were someone had talked about a specific bottling of uh, wine uh, as a little shy, like a gazelle. <laughs> like a leprechaun, <laughs> dappled in a tapestry metal uh, like the last unicorn. And um, I'm not quite sure how a unicorn tastes, so I don't know how yeah. that would uh, be able to equate in the minds of, a, of someone reading the, the description. Or a leprechaun. Another one here. Yeah. Or a leprechaun. Yeah. yeah. You know, <laughs> at least you could get close to it by, uh, you know, maybe on – you get a little closer on St. Patrick's Day sure. to a leprechaun, if, if not in reality, right? Oh. Um, another another one here the uh, site was a writer talking about a particular batch of uh, a blend of wine as having notes of cinnamon, Meyer lemon, uh, papaya. Now all that makes sense. Sure. Um, and then Monte Cristo number two with Dominican wrapping, which is a cigar, mm. followed by cat's pee and a hint of Sicilian blood orange. What? So, you, you lose me at cat's pee. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even yeah. the cigar wrapping, I was okay. Like I could kind I'm of assuming like, there's like okay, an, a hint of ammonia a, in that. You know, <laughs> smoky. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> but wow, I wouldn't. I wouldn't see how this would be done as anything other than a joke. And even then, it doesn't seem you know like a funny one. So interesting. Okay. What else? Yeah. <laughs> what else is on uh, another, this list? Another one. The author talks about. Uh, he he read in 2013, and this was uh, a documentary for Psalm, which is uh, associated with the sommelier exam, we talked about the sommelier exam, where one of the people studying for the exam described a wine as getting notes of freshly cut garden hose. I'm not sure that that would entice anyone to uh, <laughs> want to take a sampling of that wine. Maybe if The good thing about it is like when I was serving, I would have to do a lot of these wine tastings, and I can't say that my palate ever developed enough that I felt like I was really picking up on what everyone else was, but you can just throw random things out there, and you're not wrong. Like, it's you kind can. of like now, there is no wrong answer. There are certain white <laughs> wines that, uh, depending on the region they come from, will have notes of petrol, what they call yes. petrol, mm -hmm. where uh, it, if you take a drink of the wine on the right conditions, the right temperature, and as you swallow the wine, you also are inhaling through your nose a little bit to kind of aspirate that vapor, you will get notes of uh, almost light gasoline or, or over in Europe, they call it petrol. But that is a real phenomenon, depending on the white wine you have. Uh, I don't know that I've ever sucked on a garden hose willingly, though. No, no, no. Can't say that <laughs> yeah. I have. Uh, another descriptor here that came about was uh, a, a wine that possessed notes of wet horse hair, stewed prunes, burned candle wax, 
ripe plantains, saddle leather, pencil shavings, cinnabar, summer rain, decaying roses, old linen, and a cigar box. That is a lot to wrap up into one thing, and so it makes much. me think of makes me think of those uh, jelly beans uh, from oh, uh, yeah. Harry Potter. Exactly, birdies, bots of every flavored beans, <laughs> earwax, um, you know, Just leather shoe, gross flavor options. Yeah, this, yes. I mean, okay, so coming from a perspective of a consumer who doesn't really have a mind on wine speak, why would someone choose to say this about said wine? Why is it is it because they actually are tasting these things or is it because they think it makes their products sound better or more elevated? I don't know that they the 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 producer of the wine themselves is are using these um Notes. These I are think reviewer? reviewers okay. or people who are trying to sound more sophisticated and aloof <laughs> in the selection of words that they use. And perhaps it's just that the vocabulary is not uh, broad enough to find other ways to express their opinions than using things like saddle leather and pencil shavings. Um, <laughs> I mean, I that, maybe that is a thing, though, <clears throat> having a limited experience in writing and and having to pick adjectives and use different words to to describe things, I can sort of relate to that element of trying to find new ways and new descriptors. But some of these just seem incredibly over the top. Or like you should get one that sounds more appetizing. Like I've even yeah. heard people say that there's a note of like Band-Aid smell. What? And you're like, no one wants yeah. to drink that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, thank you. Well, you know, you know, Ron Burgundy, where he talks about his ah, uh, rich mahogany. Or... Rich mahogany. His, his library has lots of books. Leatherbound. Yeah. So instead of saddle leather, you know, you could talk about um, library mahogany. Instead of wood pencil shavings, you could talk about um, uh, intense, deep notes of wood. Um, I just don't know that decaying roses and old linen is uh, inspiring <laughs> me to want to ask for a second glass. Now, having said all that, there are a list of actual useful, helpful notes that we found at decanter.com. So um, it would be interesting uh, if you're going to have a wine party. We do this with uh, friends and family. We will get together. We'll each bring a bottle of wine in a brown bag, and then we'll pour the wine into samples. And we're, we do kind of blind tastings as a group where we try and figure out the style, the varietal of wine. Maybe you can figure out um, the winery, the vintner who makes it, and so on. And so you could then begin to assign cards with all these tasting notes and let people use those almost in a cards against humanity kind of nice. way. Um, so the first one on the list here, which actually has a cards against humanity type thing is, is Melanie and that's spelled M E L O N Y. And it means in this definition, uh, signifies ripe, slightly exotic fruit, usually referring to Chardonnay. More exotic fruits could include pineapple and guava. Now, when I looked up the word Melanie in this context, uh, a couple things popped up. Uh, in the official definition for Webster's, it was melon-like, and yet these, none of these tasting notes talk about that. Next on the list is floral. I think all of us have used or, or heard the word floral being used for wine notes. Uh, usually floral appears on the nose, but on the palate it means a blend of florality and flavor or uh, having uh, what you would expect to occur if you took a deep, rich inhale of some fresh flowers growing on the bush or a tree. And then something I also noticed on here, something more specific, still within the floral realm, rose-like is an actual term yes. you'll see. 
Yes, uh, usually so associated with certain ripeness, um, always floral, and um, typically you're going to find that in, in some of the lighter wines, not the deep, deep reds. I also saw uh, buttery as a good one on here mm-hmm. that um, usually is a good one to know if you like Chardonnay because the it's pretty much between buttery or oaky as like the yes. two the two main descriptors. And if you figure out which one you like of those two, then you can order a Chardonnay to your liking wherever you go. That's right. Are you more of a uh, buttery or an oaky type person? I'm more of an oaky type person. How about you? Interesting. Well, maybe I haven't figured that out yet <laughs> and I need to do more sampling. Justin, are you leaning one way or the other when it comes to Chardonnay? I do not like overly buttery Chardonnays. Yeah. Um, and I've, An I've had some taste. where you could almost you could almost dip a knife in it and spread it on your toast. There's wow. a note in the Chardonnay. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm going oak then. I'm going oak. <laughs> That's right. Big oak. I found on this list interesting the word attack and uh, when used in... In uh, wine descriptions, it means a strong first impression, uh, one that jumps out of the glass. And there are certain wines, especially where you take that first uh, whiff of it and you get very intense, deep, rich notes. And that is uh, referred to as the attack uh, of the notes. I haven't heard that before. I like that. Yeah. Next on Cast Club Radio, we're going to talk to distiller Dane, sit down with him and talk about how he comes up with some of the tasting notes for Heritage Distilling. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. We are joined by Distiller Dane, the famous Distiller Dane. In the previous segment with Mara and Lydia, finished talking about tasting notes that uh, people use for wine. We're going to walk through how tasting notes are developed at Heritage Distilling for our spirits. As you're working on products in the distillery for tasting notes, we use tasting notes for a couple things. One, we use them to train the staff who are in our tasting rooms. That way when customers come in, they can kind of walk through the tasting notes. We use tasting notes for our sales staff and our distributors to go out and talk to uh, bartenders and accounts about products and how they taste and how to use them. And then uh, we use them internally to figure out what we're going to put on printed materials. So let's pick a product. The first product is any one of our products uh, we make at Heritage. Go through the progress of tasting notes and the things that you are looking for. So I think we need to be product specific to do that. So. Mm-hmm. Let's pick, maybe pick uh, the new rum we've got out of Eugene. Yeah, that'd be a great one to start with. Okay. Walk us through the process for what you're looking for in our Commander's Rum, which is a Barbados-style blended rum. Yes. So there's a lot of research and development that goes into even getting to your original flavor profile you're trying to achieve. So we knew we wanted to start with molasses. And we developed and worked with different varieties of them because each one, depending on how long it was boiled for from sugarcane, will provide a different flavor profile. The next thing we do is develop what yeast strain you want to use for it and then how we're going to distill it off the still and what process we're going to do with that. And then finally, how we're going to blend both the bases together. Commander's Rum is interesting because it's actually developed from two different molasses bases, one being a Barbados and one being a home style. Each blend and configuration and different in percentage comes with a completely different outcome. We ended up with a 50-50 blend on that. So the Barbados by itself, besides just flavor, is very viscous, has a very thick mouthfeel, um, and kind of gets these more dark fruit notes on the back end. Um, the home style tends to bring a very lightness, especially on the front to mid palate, and then it has more of kind of your 
tropical fruit kind of hard butterscotch candy on the back end. So by blending those together, we create both those mouthfeels and flavor profiles together. So once you come with the blend, when you first take your, your first sip, you kind of have this little intensity of the Barbados side on the front to mid palate, the viscous of it, that kind of dark fruit note for the most part, and then it ends with this nice little delicate, dark, dark candy, butterscotchy note. You mentioned something about viscosity and mouthfeel. We didn't talk about that in the wine segment. We didn't talk about the mouthfeel for wine. When we talked about tasting notes in the previous segment, it was really about flavor profile, but not mouthfeel. Spirits, different than wine, we are looking for different mouthfeels based on what the spirit is because that mouthfeel is an indication of viscosity, and the viscosity is an indication of how it might mix in a cocktail. The rum, specifically, has an an amazing mouthfeel, in my opinion. It coats your mouth. It sits there, and you talked about the butterscotch notes. Um, Talk a little bit more about what that mouthfeel does as you're thinking about products like um, a vodka versus a gin, let's say. Yeah. So something with a very thin mouthfeel, the flavor can also come across very light. Um, When you have more viscosity or a thicker mouthfeel, it can almost sense like a bolder flavor profile and those flavors will kind of slowly spread across the each part inside front and back of your tongue and fall over Uh, and you actually have extra sensory glands over there that can actually pick up more flavors along with those two Um, then when it comes to the cocktail side uh, it balances so well it can hold up within that cocktail um, and you can kind of shine specifically with a spirit forward cocktail gin i don't really think of as mouthfeel because gin is so intense typically in the flavor profiles that to try to balance the the botanical flavors with the mouthfeel doesn't do what you want. Uh, But the rum by itself is something, if it's going to be a sipping rum as opposed to something you might mix with Coke or something like that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so we talked about rum. Let's talk about uh, tasting notes for whiskeys. Let's pick a whiskey. That's probably the most famous whiskeys, either scotch or Irish whiskey or bourbon. So let's maybe pick something here in the U.S. like a bourbon. Talk through the progression of some of the tasting notes, distinguishing between a a high wheat bourbon and a high rye bourbon. Yeah, so the first thing about bourbon or whiskeys in general is very interesting because you already kind of know what grains you're using, the base profiles, how you're bringing out the still, what kind of barrel you're using, but the whole aging and maturation process is not something you can control necessarily 100%. So that's why a lot of bourbons are vatted in small batches or multiple barrels of the same recipe kind of put together and comes off. Um, typically, um, a wheat can generally, depending on the type of wheat you're using, can bring um, natural, slight cereal-like sweetness to it, um, a creamy mouthfeel. Um, it can tend to absorb oak in the barrel a little quicker. There's varieties like winter wheat that bring natural caramel notes to your ending flavor profile. Uh, bourbon is a whole monster of its own because uh, Generally, most bourbons are fairly high in corn, but generally use rye and malted barley in their recipes as well. And there's different variations within there. Um, But definitely on the sweeter side, because of that heavier use of corn, uh, you can get really bold with, you know, a higher concentration of rye or even more floral notes with a smaller concentration of rye. And then when you break into your barleys or single malts, you kind of go to the more neutral earthy tones and then you can get specialty malts in there and kind of create new flavor profiles around that. And depending on the proof 
of the bourbon in this case, uh, whether it's 80 proof or 92 proof or 100 proof or even barrel strength, like maybe 120, 126 proof, the mouthfeel mm-hmm. is going to be very different because oh, the amount of alcohol, the amount of ethanol will cause your your palate to react differently. Mm-hmm. Same product, but different proof. Let's talk about tasting notes. When you are out there looking at a bourbon, any bourbon out on the at the bar, what are your favorite tasting notes? What are you looking for in one of those bourbons? Yeah, that can be a little hard because I like variety. So I always essentially like something new. Um, my favorite ones to get are maybe the more hired ones, but that actually have the tasting notes written on them, maybe mm. by their master distiller, and really try to compare and see if I can get those same notes out of it. And then okay. comparing to reviews, I've seen online what people like to report themselves for fun as, you know, like a hobby. Yeah, Tasting notes are actually really hard and it's not something that is just easy to go in there and to be done you really have to have a palette for it i don't even think personally have the best palette it's like uh i'm also kind of like partially colorblind i can see every color but it's hard to see different shades it's the same thing with tasting because everyone's sensory is different from each other yeah. you know one of your nostrils might be able to smell better than the other and you know people argue that 80 percent of taste is aroma mm-hmm. uh, so the best thing to do is get a tasting panel um, and sit down with everyone. And then what I like to do is try it at a higher strength, you know, a mid strength and like the lowest bottling strength and kind of work your way down because you can pick up intensities of aromas and taste at the, you know, the cast strength or whatnot. And then as you slowly add some water, it can open it up and you start uh, seeing the other nuances in there. But since everyone can smell and taste differently or some better than the others, you know, some people pick up on notes and then you're like, oh, do I get that kind of stone fruit or dark cherry in there? And where on the palate is it hitting? You know, when is it coming in? When is it leaving? One of the best things is just to go around and smell any, everything. Because I think one of the hard things is you smell everything, but you don't know what word to identify with it. Right, right. Yeah, because yeah, if you don't have the thing in front of you where you can say, oh, yeah, that does smell like rosemary for some people like they won't they know the smell yeah but they can't identify the smell you mentioned something uh, very important and that is the palate and the aroma depending on the time of day when you taste something depending on what you ate if you had coffee in the morning already if you just had lunch the environmental conditions of the room you're in is it hot is it air conditioned is it uh, do you have constant movement is there a fan do you have a, a filter You'll see a lot of these tasting rooms in the laboratories where the master distiller or master blender is is putting uh, the finished product together. They're going to be the equivalent of clean rooms, Uh, negative vacuum rooms, so they're constantly pulling air out, clean of all particles. Have you ever gone through and tasted something on purpose, the same product at different times of the day to see what different tasting notes you get? I have, and especially just during the creation of new products. And at, there's been multiple times where we've just had to give it up and come back to it the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're trying to do like a more serious tasting, I definitely like to do kind of like first thing in the morning. Don't drink coffee that morning. You have kind of more of a, a fresh palate. Um, but, you know, after you've had your lunch and you're drinking this or that and, you know, it is hot in the afternoon or someone's cooking pizza in the cafeteria over there and the smell of it's coming in. Um, kind of get into an enclosed room. You don't want drifts of other smells coming in, interfering. Um, so, yeah, there is ways about that. And there are some people who religiously follow certain certain ways to do that, too. Yeah. Well, uh, Dane, thanks for joining us to talk about some tasting notes and developing flavor profiles. Coming up on Cask Club Radio, Dane's going to stick around, and he's going to give us another incredible top five. Plus, we'll have a brand-new cocktail recipe for you 
That's next on Cows Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. We are joined by Distiller Dane. He's hanging out with us, and he's going to give us his latest top five. So here we are, Distiller Dane's top five of the week. Go. Number one on my list is the Summer Meltdown Music Festival, running August 1st through 5th up in Darrington, Washington. Um, This is a really cool outdoor music festival, four days of music of all genres, art installations, and workshops. Uh, there's even a river in the campground you can relax at. I'm going to go try to check it out for my first time this year. Okay. Do you expect to see any goth people there? Uh, I don't know, but all is welcome. Okay. <laughs> all right. Number two. Uh, number two on my list, also up I-5 North, is Garden Path Fermentation. Uh, so this is a brewery over in Skagit Valley. So it's kind of a duo of fermentation freaks from Jester King Brewery, who I've talked about from Austin. They opened up this place, and they're doing amazing things. Um, they source all their ingredients from Skagit Valley, including native yeast. And when I was in there, they had a lot of their beers conditioned with local blackberry honey. So they're doing a lot of a kind of unique, interesting things. And what's it called? Garden Path Fermentation. And not just brewery, because they also make uh, wine, perry, cider. Um, okay. It's a 21 and plus establishment. And you call them fermentation freaks? Yeah. Okay. I like that. We're going we're gonna to figure out to put that uh, to use later on. Okay. Number three. Number three is aquariums, and specifically the Seattle Aquarium. Hmm. When was the last time you stepped foot in one? Uh, I was at, I wouldn't say, well, let's see. I got to think now. Maybe when I was in South Carolina. Charleston. Uh, South Carolina. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't been to one in a long time. It was actually quite a lot of fun. Um, at the Seattle one, there's this cool small glass-like tunnel. Uh, you can walk through full of jellyfish, but the real showstopper are the sea otters. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, would they lay on their back, cracking open shells and stuff? Oh, yeah, a little yeah. clams and oysters. They're super cute, and they just kind of somersault all over the place, and they love the attention. Yeah, my favorite part about the sea otter is it tastes really good with barbecue sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Not for real. Don't yeah. do that. A little bit of sea salt. They're protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Let's not do that. Okay, number four on Distiller Dan's top five of the week. Number four is what I'm calling crisps over cobblers because right now it's blueberry season and I don't really make cobblers with them, but this summer it's all about the crisps. Okay. I think at Anthony's they call them slumps, that dessert, and it's... uh, you order it, it comes in a ramekin, and it's the berry uh, mixture with the, the dough or the crust, and then more baked on top. It looks almost like a souffle, and they serve it with ice cream. They are fantastic. Uh, so I'm with you on that. I, I like to serve uh, vanilla ice cream on mine, and yeah. actually made some BSB whipped cream and even put that on top of it. Oh, man, awesome. The next thing is to take that BSB and make a little reduction on the stove. Oh, yeah. Like a little sauce. Okay, last, number five. Number five. We got summer music festivals, summer crisps, beer aquariums. Uh, This one is the cocktail to be best enjoyed, and that is rum punch cocktails. Oh, yeah. Um, So this is kind of like a tip to the classic punch bowl rather than the standard kind of rum pineapple grenadine cocktail. Uh, But I recently had a boozy craft punch with actually included rum, apple brandy, tropical fruits, sherry, and sparkling wine. Seems like all that when it mixed well together, but it was absolutely delicious and the perfect summer cocktail. Rum Punch was famous back during the revolutionary days of George Washington 
John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. Uh, they would get together in the saloons and pubs in the Northeast and consume copious amounts of rum punch. And it was actually over rum punch that plans for the Declaration of Independence were, were finished. So any of you out there aspiring people wanting to overthrow the government, maybe mix up the uh, batch of rum punch to uh, inspire you. That's it. Top five. Plans. Yeah. Got plans for tomorrow? I uh, know, just enjoying the sunshine. Okay, uh, we just finished uh, the first few days of Seahawks training camp. Folks are looking good out there, beautiful weather. And uh, next up, we're going to give you our cocktail recipe of the week. It involves our hibiscus vodka. It also requires some limeade, some club soda, and a lime popsicle. We use the brand called Outshine, but you can get any popsicle lime flavored at the grocery store. So what you want to do is add all of your liquids in a glass, two ounces of our hibiscus vodka, two ounces of limeade, two ounces of club soda, and then basically add the popsicle as a garnish with the stick sticking out and put in a fresh sprig of mint. As the popsicle melts, the cocktail gets better and better. Now you can also uh, make your own riff on this at home by making the popsicles with the vodka and limeade and a few other things, um, and then uh, putting that popsicle when it's done in the club soda to uh, really make sure it's nice and cold. So beautiful summer weather around here. Make yourself a hibiscus limeade popsicle cocktail and uh, share it with your friends. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, send them to us at Radio at heritagedistilling.com. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. You can also find information uh, about us at heritagedistilling.com. And uh, please don't forget to rate us on iTunes. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling. 